Foundation is in the process of revising its bylaws, the rules under which the organization must be operated. The Foundation is considering seven bylaws amendments concerning in-person meetings of the board, the election of station representative directors, proportional reduction in size of the national board, and other amendments. To read the proposed changes, you can visit Pacifica.org. The national board will vote on July 17th. The five local station boards will vote within 60 days of that date. To be approved, each proposal must receive a majority vote of the Pacifica National Board and of three of the five stations' boards. Again, for more information, including the language of the amendments, you can visit Pacifica.org. Listener-sponsored radio, KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday. The endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, June the 17th, I think, 17, right, 17. 17th coming. Yes, Juneteenth celebrations. Anyway, today, today I'm celebrating in a way, celebrating and mourning another ancestor, Ruby D. Now... <laughs> Yes, Ruby D is now with Maya Angelou, Angelou in in that land from which no traveler returns. African American artists, of course, are among our most aristocratic uh, ancestors. You know, supersized souls of the nation, actually, of all nations of the world. They're world figures. Uh, you know, uh, the kind of artists that are not limited to a nation or a race or a gender or any other category, you know, to designate these great ones as black artists or black writers uh, is to suffer from hardening of the categories, you know. <laughs> I mean, what category is... Paul Robeson, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, all of them back into history. They are, of course, the mothers and fathers of us all. Uh, they are the, the cultural creators. I don't want to call them gods. People get confused when I say that 
human beings are, well, let's call them demigods. Let's call them uh, a little magical, a little more than human. Years ago, I remember this talk show. Uh, let's see. Nick Cavett. He was interviewing Toni Morrison. Uh, he asked her if she wanted to be called a black writer. Uh, she said, well, no, not if it's pejorative, so forth. She was trying to be polite. And then when he asked her uh, again, with a kind of paternalistic air, he asked her how she had uh, conceived, created, imagined these characters in her books. You know, Song of Solomon, Sula, all her uh, great novels. He said that the women in her books seemed so strong that they were uh, supernatural, magical. Their powers to uh, survive were out of the ordinary. Uh, the way they came through for those they loved. Uh, she, she just shrugged and smiled and she explained that Imagination had nothing to do with it. They were just her relations, her family, her ancestors, the women who had struggled to get her out of the South and into a world where she might have a chance to survive, even to thrive. Now, these black women of my generation, uh, they're becoming icons for the young. Uh, many of the Contemporary artists, uh, writers, poets, dancers, singers, they, they do remember to give thanks. I noticed at the Tony Awards and the Oscars, they do remember to give a nod to these people from the past, uh, pointing out that they would not be where they are if the people who came before them had not been where they were. Uh, they had a role in changing history. You know, uh, they do understand the young people. They understand those artists who led the culture forward, even if it cost them, even if it was at times humiliating uh, or dangerous, God knows, uh, reading about the great white hope the other night. No, I mustn't digress there, but, you know, there were times when the uh, political, the political climate was extremely cruel to artists. Uh, we think of Sidney Poitier, James Baldwin. Oh, there's just too many to list. Denzel and all the others do pay homage. They know where their duty lies, uh, uh-huh. But they, I guess, I guess I'm saying that I guess they cannot understand what it felt like to hit that gas, glass ceiling back in the day. Uh, think of Ozzie Davis, some of his speeches. Remember the speeches he gave uh, in his old age? He seemed to be called every time there was a funeral. He did a good job of talking about the past and he and his wife Ruby Dee were so special because they were not only masters of their craft, of their work on stage uh, 
but they were a couple, a married couple. They represented for their lifetimes a successful marriage. You know, like, like Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin and before that, Lontan Fontaine. Uh, it was a, a grand tradition. Not many in this generation. Uh, those are the ones who actually stayed married. Let's see. Paul Newman. <laughs> Denzel. Yes, any number of uh, married artists, but very few that acted together, stuck together on stage, and whose evolution creatively, you know, was on a par, no no competition. Actually, I was thinking, I made a list, and at the bottom of the list was Rex Harrison and Lily Palmer. They were not so lucky as couples. Of course, they were Brits, you know. Uh, anyway, I think of Raisin in the Sun, which is in revival now, just about everywhere. Uh, that was one of Ruby Dee's early successes. In a way, it's usually pointed to as the beginning of her career as a star in the theater. I think of the later films the ones that uh, hit hard, Spike Lee's movies, you remember, uh, you remember both Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis in Jungle Fever. Uh, they played an older couple. Ozzie Davis played a stern man of God, a fundamentalist who was cruel, uh, his wife, his trembling wife, was played by Ruby Dee. She tries to protect her son, played by Samuel Jackson, tries to protect the son from the father. I thought of James Baldwin's novels, Sam Jackson, let's see, he played the junkie son. It's an awesome scene when they face down. I watched it thinking, I wish James Baldwin had lived long enough to see that kind of, uh, that kind of trauma up on the big screen. My favorite of the late films would be Do the Right Thing. I'm sure it'll be uh, featured on premium channels on the television this week. Uh, in Do the Right Thing, Ruby Dee plays this terrific character, Sister Woman. She's... Uh, She's a neighborhood uh, mother. Yes, she's kind of everybody's mother. She scolds the Ozzie Davis character because he's the neighborhood lush. Of course, she loves him, and she's very proud of him when he finally does the right thing. <laughs> even, if it, even if it nearly kills him, it was very sweet. I like a little sentiment. Uh, I mean, I keep thinking... If I have to put up with all the mayhem and bloody murder and uh, violence that we see on screen, then why can't some other people endure a little sentimentality? I mean, not I don't want gratuitous uh, sentimentality, but if you look at the movies from, oh, say, the 30s, 40s, even into the 50s, the mawkish sentimentality uh, was over the top, 
but let's face it, uh, <laughs> yes, it didn't really cause sentimentality or sweetness in the streets or the homes, did it? Anyway, uh, last week I read here on KPFA a passage from Maya Angelou's autobiography. There are four or five volumes. Let's see. The one I used was The Heart of a Woman mostly about the 50s, about Maya Angelou's encounter with Billie Holiday and uh, with Abby Lincoln, her friend Abby Lincoln, and uh, a whole bunch of people who were, uh, what is the word, uh, part of the scene at that time. Billie Holiday came to visit Maya Angelou, met her for the first time, and Maya's son Guy is about age 12. Uh, he's interested in Billie Holiday and asks her some naive questions. And then, in a moment of uh, harsh, harsh realism, Billie Holiday tells this young boy the meaning of the horrific message contained in that historic song, Strange Fruit. You remember Billy, uh, Billy Holiday's rendition of Strange Fruit. It tells the story of uh, a lynching. Yes. Uh, Guy, the little boy, asks her what it means, blood at the root. Obviously, he's very young, and when she tells him what it meant, I can't even read it on the air, uh, Maya Angelou is startled that Billie Holiday would be so angry, vindictive, you know, to talk about such a thing in front of her son. And the fact is that the boy, Guy, seems to turn Billie around. They kind of become pals. <laughs> I love the bit where Billie Holiday says she wants to take him shopping because he shouldn't be wearing those tattered clothes because there's white folks in the neighborhood, that kind of thing. Uh uh, I should have brought that in today to read some more because it's so affecting. Uh, also, the scenes when Maya meets Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King. I love it, you know. Everyone was always startled that Martin Luther King was short and that he was young, 39 when he died. Anyway, you know, when you meet an icon, you expect them to be 10 feet tall, uh, that scene, the description that Maya uses of Billie Holiday, it was written just a few months before she died. And obviously, she died uh, bitter, very, very sad. Uh, I heard a commentator on the radio this week say that they were, uh, they were grateful that Maya Angelou had died in her sleep. I'm not sure whether that's... A good thing. Uh, they also mentioned that Maya Angelou had been in pain for the last ten years. That hurts to think about. But uh, uh, she is she is uh, no longer in pain. Let's see, she's six years older than I am, and uh, now, as I said, she is with the ancestors. The loss of these women from my generation. It's very hard. I mean, 
even if they're not, you know, personal friends, it's my time, my my era in history. Uh, I think about all that is lost, uh, and of course, then I have to make myself think of everything that's been gained about the real changes, and there are some real changes, not the one, not the ones we thought about. Actually, uh, I think of. I guess most of all, I think of Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize lecture. Uh, what she was worried about was the changes in language and how uh, our culture is reflected, uh, let's call it, in the spoken word. Every day I listen to the new words, the new language, and what it says to me, the context of these words. It's all a frame, frame. The words are in a frame, picture, image. Fascinating. The other day, I tried to figure out what what it means, the difference between an image. Yes, an image and a word. Uh, there is a difference, I know, but uh, sometimes kind of hard to work out if there's anything that puts an image into my brain. It's a word. Uh, anyway, the strength and the power of language is what I'm concerned with most of the days of my life. Uh, Toni Morrison is still very much alive, and uh, I think she's in a wheelchair last I heard. Mm-hmm. That prize for uh, the uh, novel... Let's see, it was, I think, The Beloved, yes. She got the Nobel Prize in 1993. And if nothing else, the prize got her the attention of the literary crowd, the literati. Just when literature is fading, melting, as Gore Vidal kept telling us, you know, to be a great novelist is not what it used to be. Uh, in today's world... Films, movies, they are the dominant art form. They certainly are going to be the dominant art form in the 21st century. When I uh, think about it, especially about the black writers, the language they use, I remember that they were raised on the King James Bible. <laughs> think about that one. It's the sort of English that I read as a child, the language of, well, the Victorians, all those Victorian novels, not to mention the Elizabethans, yes, gravitas, heavy duty. Now, Toni Morrison's uh, acceptance speech for the Nobel told us that... Uh, she was afraid, she was fearing for the fate of her language. Now, uh, when she was growing up, English prose and poetry was the sort of language that stains the soul. I used to say, sticks to the top of your soul. Anyway, she uses an image, uses the image of a bird in the hand. She talks about this bird that is weak and trembling, and it is in the hands of the young. She writes about hoping that this bird 
this bird will survive. She talks about whether it's living or dead. She wonders what the young will do with language now that they have it in their hands. I think I have time to read you a passage from Toni Morrison's Nobel Lecture, 1993. A couple of little experts, uh, excerpts, excerpts, something, Jennifer's. <clears throat> Misspeaking once upon a time, she writes, once upon a time there was an old woman, blind, wise. In the version I know, the woman is the daughter of slaves. Black American lives alone in a small house outside of town. The honor she is paid and the awe in which she is held reach beyond her neighborhood to places far away, to the city where the intelligence of rural, rural prophets is the source of much amusement. One day, this woman is visited by some young people. They seem to be bent on disproving her clairvoyance and showing her up for the fraud they believe she is. They stand before her. One of them says, Old woman, I hold in my hand a bird. Tell me whether it is living or dead. She doesn't answer. She's blind, cannot see her visitors, let alone what is in their hands. She does not know their color, gender, or homeland. She only knows their motive. <laughs> a footnote here, I mustn't interrupt, but a footnote about the master narrative. You know how that is. That little Humpty Dumpty quote about... A word meaning what uh, I choose it to mean, yes. And, of course, the answer to that is it all depends on who is master. It is the master who defines the words. Anyway, uh, the old woman is so silent, so long, the young people have trouble holding their laughter. Finally, she speaks. Her voice is soft but stern. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive. But what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. Toni Morrison goes on to write, I chose to read the bird as language. The woman is a practiced writer, worried about how the language she dreams in, given to her at birth, is handled, put into service, even withheld. Ah. Nefarious purposes, yes, withhold the language. She believes that if the bird in the hands of her visitors is dead... The custodians are responsible for the corpse. She is convinced that when language dies out of carelessness, disuse, absence of esteem, indifference, or killed by fiat, 
Not only she herself, but all users and makers are accountable for its demise. In her country, children have bitten their tongues off and use bullets instead to iterate the voice of speechlessness, of disabled and disabling language, of language adults have abandoned altogether as a device for grappling with meaning, providing guidance, or expressing love. But she knows tongue suicide is not only the choice of children, it is common among the infantile heads of state and power merchants whose evacuated language leaves them with no access to what is left of their human instincts or they speak only to those who obey or in order to force obedience. I interrupt again. There you go. It's all about the master. Speak only to those who obey or speak only to enforce obedience. She goes on to say oppressive language does more than represent violence. It is violence. It does more than represent the limits of knowledge. It limits knowledge. Whether it is the faux language of law without ethics or language designed for the estrangement of minorities, hiding its racist plunder in its literary cheek. It must be rejected, altered, and exposed. It is the language that drinks blood, laps vulnerabilities, tucks its fascist boots under crenolons of respectability and patriotism as it moves relentlessly toward the bottom line and the bottomed out mind sexist language racist language theistic language all are typical of the policing languages of mastery and cannot do not permit new knowledge or encourage the mutual exchange of ideas oh dear I think I must save some of this for next time because there is so much. And, of course, Toni Morrison is so profound. Her language has gravitas. <laughs> yes. And she is worried that perhaps the bird is already dead. Let me read you the end of this essay. Uh, the children, the young ones, ask her for advice. They say to her, Tell us what it is to be a woman so that we may know what it is to be a man. What moves at the margin. What it is to have no home on this place. To be set adrift from the ones you knew. What is it to live at the edge of towns that cannot bear your company. Get your money. This has been Jennifer Stone. The last bits that I read you were from Toni Morrison's Nobel Lecture back in 1993. 
I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday about this same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Subversives, now out in paperback, is Seth Rosenthal's electrifying insider narrative history of UC Berkeley and the Bay, the 60s and since, the many folks we know and the many folks we are. Ishmael Reed says it will shock even those who have become used to the national security state and its excesses. Matt Taibbi agrees. Seth Rosenthal will present Subversives on Thursday evening, June 19th, 7.30 p.m. at St. John's Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. Richard Walensky will host. There is wheelchair access and considerable free parking at this KPFA benefit. Tickets are at brownpapertickets.com and our supportive bookstores. More info on the KPFA website. For Seth Rosenfeld, June 19th, Subversives. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno at 88.1, online at kpfa.org. Work Week Radio begins now.